Chapter 21 of Europe in the Middle Ages by Ierna Lifford Plunkett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 21 Italy in the Later Middle Ages. When the Company of Death repulsed the German army of Frederick Barbarossa on the field of Lugano, it raised aloft before the eyes of Europe not only the banner of democracy but also of nationality others as we have seen followed these banners once displayed the swiss cantons shook off the Habsburg yoke the flemish towns defied their counts and french overlords the hansa cities formed political as well as commercial leagues against scandinavia france england and spain emerged through war and anarchy as modern states conscious of a national destiny the slow evolution of nations and classes is the history of the later middle ages but in Italy there is no steady progress to record, rather a retrogression that proves her early efforts to secure freedom were little understood even by those who made them. Frederick too had ruled Lombardy in the 13th century through tyrants, but long after the Hohenstaufen had disappeared and the quarrels of the Welfs and the Weiblingen had dwindled into a memory in Germany the feuds of gulfs and ghibellines were still a monstrous reality in towns south of the alps where petty despots enslaved the communes and reduced the country to perpetual warfare at length from this welter of lost hopes and evil deeds there emerged not italy a nation but five italian states of preeminence in the peninsula namely milan venice florence naples and rome each was more jealous of the other than of foreign intervention, so that on the slightest pretext one would appeal to France to support her ambitions, another to Spain or to the Empire, and yet a third to Hungary or the Greeks. If Italy, as a result, became at a later date the cockpit of Europe, where strangers fought their battles and settled their fortunes, it was largely her lack of any national foresight in medieval times that brought on her this misery. The history of Milan, first as a commune fighting for her own liberty and destroying her neighbors, then as the battleground of a struggle between two of her chief families, and finally as the slave of the victor, is the tale of many a North Italian town, only that position and wealth gave to the fate of this famous city a more than local interest. The lords of Milan in the 14th and early 15th centuries were the Visconti, typical tyrants of Italy of their day, quick with their swords, but still more ready with poison or a dagger, profligate and luxurious, patrons of literature and art, bad enemies and still worse friends, false and cruel, subtle as the serpent they so fittingly bore as an emblem. No bond but fear compelled their subjects' loyalty, and deliberate cruelty to inspire fear they had made a part of their system. Bernabo Visconti permitted no one but himself to enjoy the pleasures of the chase, but for this purpose he kept some five thousand savage hounds fed on flesh, and into their kennels his soldiers cast such hapless peasants as had accidentally killed their lord's game or dared to poach on his preserves. No sense of the sanctity of an envoy's person disturbed this grim Visconti's sense of humor when he demanded of messengers sent by the Pope with unpleasant tidings whether they would rather drink or eat. As he put the question, he pointed towards the river, rushing in a torrent beneath the bridge on which he stood, 
and the envoys casting horrified eyes in that direction replied sir we will eat eat this then said bernabo sternly handling them the papal letter with its leaden seals and thick parchment and before they left his presence the whole had been consumed galeazzo visconti an elder brother of bernabo bore an even worse reputation for cruelty those he condemned to death had their suffering prolonged on a deliberate program during forty-one days losing now an eye and now a foot or a hand were beaten forced to swallow nauseous drinks and then when the agony could be prolonged no further broken on the wheel the scene of this torture was a scaffold set in the public gaze that milan might read what was the anger of the visconti and tremble the most famous of this infamous family was gian galeazzo the son of galeazzo a youth so timid by nature that he would shake and turn white at the sudden closing of a door or at a noise in the street below his uncle bernabo believed him half-witted and foolishly accepted an invitation to visit him after his father's death intending to manage the young man's affairs for him and to keep him in terrified submission the wily old man was to find himself outmatched however for gian galeazzo came to their meeting-place with an armed guard arrested his uncle and imprisoned him in a castle where he died by slow poison after this gian galeazzo reigned alone in milan with no law save his ruthless ambition and by this and his skill in creating political opportunities and making use of them at his neighbor's expense he succeeded in stretching his tyranny over the plains of lombardy and southward amongst the hill cities of tuscany near at home he beat down resistance by force of arms while farther away he secured by bribery or fraud the allegiance of cities too weak to stand alone yet less afraid of distant milan than of venice or florence that lay nearer to their walls it was one of gian galeazzo's aim to found a kingdom in north italy and he went far towards realizing his project stretching his dominion at one time to verona and vicenza at the very gates of venice while in the south he absorbed as subject towns pisa and siena the two arch enemies of florence this territory acquired by war bribery murder and fraud he persuaded the emperor to recognize as a duchy hereditary in his family and at once proceeded to form alliances with the royal houses of europe the marriage of his daughter valentia with the young and weak-minded duke of orleans brother of the french king though hardly an attractive union for the bride <laughs> proved fraught with importance for the whole of italy since at the very end of the fifteenth century louis duke of orleans a grandson of valentia visconti succeeded to the french crown as louis the twelfth and also laid claim to the duchy of milan as a descendant of the visconti at first sight it seems strange that any race so cruel and unprincipled as the visconti should continue to maintain their tyranny over men and women naturally independent like the inhabitants of north italy certainly if their rulers had been forced to rely on municipal levies they would not have kept their power even for a generation but unfortunately the old plan of expecting every citizen of military age to appear at the sound of a bell in order to defend his town had practically disappeared instead the professional soldier had taken the citizen's place 
the type of man who as long as he received high wages and frequent booty did not care who was his master nor to what ugly job of carnage or intimidation he was bidden to bring his sword this system of hiring soldiers condottieri as they were called in italy had arisen partly from the laziness of the townsmen themselves who did not wish to leave their business in order to drill and fight and were therefore quite willing to pay volunteers to serve instead of them partly it was due to the reluctance of tyrants to arm and employ as soldiers the people over whom they ruled from the point of view of the visconti for instance it was much safer to enroll strangers who would not have any patriotic scruples in carrying out a massacre or any other orders equally harsh for such ruffians italy herself supplied a wide recruiting ground namely the numberless small towns once independent but now swallowed up by bigger states who treated the conquered as perpetual enemies to be bullied and suppressed allowing them no share in the government nor voice in their future destiny wide experience has taught the world that such tyranny breeds merely hatred and disloyalty and the continual local warfare from which medieval italy suffered could be largely traced to the failure to recognize this political truth with no legitimate outlet for their energies the young men of the conquered towns found in the formation of a company of adventurers or in the service of some prince the only path to renown possibly a way of revenge to italian condottieri were added german soldiers whom emperors visiting italy had brought in their train and who afterwards remained behind looking on the cities of italy as a happy hunting ground for loot and adventure yet a third source of supply were freebooters from france released by one of the truces of the hundred years war and hastily sent by those who had employed them to seek their fortunes elsewhere amongst those who came to italy in the fourteenth century and built for himself a name of terror and renown was an english captain sir john hawkwood the son of an essex tailor knighted by edward the third for his prowess on the battlefields of france here is what a florentine chronicler says of him Quote, he endured under arms longer than any one for he endured sixty years and he well knew how to manage that there should be little peace in italy in his time for men and communes and all cities live by peace but these men live and increase by war which is the undoing of cities for they fight and become of naught in such men there is neither love nor faith one tale of the day records how some franciscans meeting sir john hawkwood exclaimed as was their custom peace be with you to their astonishment he answered god take away your alms when they asked him for the reason for wishing them so ill he replied you also wish that god might make me die of hunger know you not that i live on war and that peace would ruin me i therefore returned your greeting in like sort sir john hawkwood spent most of his time in the service of florence and whatever his cruelty and greed he does not seem to have been as false as other captains of his time indeed when he died the florentines buried him in their cathedral and raised an effigy in grateful memory of his deeds on behalf of the city returning to the history of milan and her condottieri gian galazio though timid and unwarlike himself was a shrewd judge of character and his captains while they struck terror into his enemies 
remained faithful to himself. When he died in 1402, however, many of them tried to establish independent states, and it was some years before his son, Filippo Maria, could master them and regain control over the greater part of the duchy. Even more cowardly than his father, Filippo Maria lived, like Louis XI of France, shut off from the sight of men. Sismondi, the historian, describes him as a strange, dingy creature with protruding eyeballs and furtive glance. He hated to hear the word death mentioned, and for fear of assassination would change his bedroom every night. When news was brought him of defeat, he would tremble in the expectation that his condottieri might desert him. When messengers arrived flush with victory, he was scarcely less aghast, believing that the successful general might become his rival. Such was the penalty paid by despots, save for those of iron nerve, in return for their luxury and power. The dread that the most servile of condottieri might be bribed into a relentless enemy, poison lurk in the seasoned dish or wine cup, a dagger pierced the strongest mesh of steel tunic. So night and day was the great Visconti haunted by fear, while his hired armies forced Genoa to acknowledge his suzerainty, and plunged his duchy into rivalry with Venice along the line of the river Adige. The history of Venice differs in many ways from that of other Italian states. Built on a network of islands that destined her geographically for a great sea power, she had looked from earliest times not to territorial aggrandizement, but to commercial expansion for the satisfaction of her ambitions. In this way, she had avoided the strife of feudal landowners and even the gulf and ghibelline factions that had reduced her neighbors to slavery. Elsewhere in Italy, the names of cities and states are bound up with the histories of medieval families, Naples with the quarrels of Hohenstaufen, Angevins, and Aragonese, Rome with the barons of the Campania, the Orsini and Colonna, Milan with the Visconti and later with the Sforza, Florence with the Medici, but in Venice the state was everything, demanding of her sons and daughters not the startling qualities and vices of the successful soldier of fortune, but obedience, self-effacement, and hard work. The doge, or duke, the chief magistrate of Venice, has been compared to a king, but he was, in reality, merely a president elected for life, and that by a system rendered as complicated as possible in order to prevent wire-pulling. Once chosen and presented to the people with the old formula, this is your doge and it please you, the new ruler of the city found himself hedged about by a hundred constitutional checks that compelled him to act only on the well-considered advice of his six ducal councillors, forbade him to raise any of his family to a public office or to divest himself of a rank that he might with years find more burdensome than pleasant. He was also made aware that the respect with which his commands were received was paid not to himself but to his office, and through his office to Venice, a royal mistress before whom even a haughty aristocracy willingly bent the knee. In the early days, all important matters in Venice were decided by a general assembly of the people. But as the population grew, this unwieldy body was replaced by a grand council of leading citizens. In the early 14th century, another and still more important change was made 
for the ranks of the ground council were closed and only members of those families who had been in the habit of attending its meetings were allowed to do so in the future thus a privileged aristocracy was created and the majority of venetians excluded from any share in their government but because this government aimed not at the advantage of any particular family but of the whole state people forgave its despotic character even the famous council of ten that like the court of star chamber under the tudors had power to seize and examine the citizens secretly in the interests of the state was admired by the venetians over whom it exerted its sway because of its reputation for even-handed justice that drew no distinctions between the son of a doge a merchant or a beggar the venetian republic says a modern writer on medieval times was the one stable element in all north italy and this condition of political calm was the wonder and admiration of contemporaries sometimes today it seems difficult to admire medieval venice because of her selfishness and frank commercialism she had no sense of patriotism either towards italy or christendom witness the fourth crusade where nothing but her insistent desire to protect her trading position in the east had influenced her diplomacy this accusation of selfishness is true but we must remember that the word patriotism has a much wider scope in modern times than was possible to the limited outlook of the middle ages venice might be unmoved by the words italy or christendom but the whole of her life and ideals were centered in the word venice her sailors and merchants who laid the foundations of her greatness were no hired mercenaries but citizens willing to lay down their lives for the republic who was their mother and their queen thus narrowing the term patriotism we see that of all the italian powers venice alone understood what the word meant in that her sons and daughters were willing to sacrifice as a matter of course not merely life but family ambitions class and even individuality to the interests of their state the ambitions of venice were bound up with the shipping and commerce that had gained for her the carrying trade of the world to take for example the wool manufacture of such vital interest to english and flemings we find that at one time this depended largely on venetian merchants who would carry sugar and spices to england from the east replace their cargo with wool unload this in turn in the harbors of flanders and then laden with bales of manufactured cloth return to dispose of them in italian markets besides the carrying trade which depended on her neighbor's industry venice had her own manufactures such as silk and glass but in either case both her sailors and workmen found one thing absolutely vital to their interests namely the command of the adriatic like the british isles of today venice could not feed her thriving population from home produce and yet with enemies or pirates hiding along the dalmatian coast safety for her richly laden vessels passing to and fro could not be guaranteed these are some of the reasons why from earliest times the republic had embarked on an aggressive maritime policy that brought her into clash with other mediterranean ports and especially with genoa her rival in eastern waters when at the end of the fourth crusade venice forced constantinople to accept a latin dynasty she secured for herself for the time being a special privileges in that world market 
Genoa, who adopted the cause of the exiled Greeks, achieved a signal triumph in her turn when in 1261, with her assistance, Michael Paleologus, a Greek general, restored the Byzantine Empire amid public rejoicings. Open warfare was now almost continuous between the republics. There was street fighting at Constantinople and in the ports of Palestine, sea battles off the Italian and Greek coasts, encounters in which varying fortunes gave at first the mastery of the Mediterranean to neither Venice nor Genoa, but which disastrously weakened the whole resistance of Christendom to the Mohammedans. At length, in 1380, a decisive battle was fought off Chioga, one of the cities of the Venetian lagoons, whither the Genoese fleet, triumphant on the open seas, had taken up its quarters, determined to blockade the enemy and to surrender. Let us man every vessel in Venice and go and fight the flow, was the general cry. And a popular leader, Pisani, imprisoned on account of his share in a recent naval disaster, was released on the public demand and made captain of the enterprise. Long live Pisani, the citizens shouted in their joy. But their hero, true to the spirit of Venice, answered them, Venetians cry only, long live St. Mark. With a few ships and men at his disposal, Pisani recognized that it was out of the question to lead a successful attack. But he knew that if he could defer the issue, there was a Venetian fleet in the eastern Mediterranean which, learning his straits, would return with all possible speed to his aid. He therefore determined to force the enemy to remain where they were without offering open battle, and this maneuver he carried out with great boldness and skill sinking heavy vessels loaded with stones in the channels that led to Chioga, while placing his own fleet across the main entrance to prevent Genoese reinforcements. The blockaders were now blockaded, and through long winter days and nights the rivals, worn out by their bitter vigil, starving and short of ammunition, watched one another and searched the horizon anxiously. At length a shout arose, for distant sails had been sighted, then, as the Venetian flag floated proudly into view, the shout of Pisani and his men became a song of triumph. The Republic was saved. Venice was not only saved from ruin, her future as Queen of the Adriatic was assured, for the Genoese admiral was compelled to surrender, and his Republic to acknowledge her rival's supremacy of the seas. The sea policy of Venice was the inevitable result of her geographical position. But as the centuries passed, she developed a much more debatable land policy. Many medieval Venetians declared that since land was the source of all political trouble, therefore Venice should only maintain enough command over the immediate mainland to secure the city from a surprise attack. Others replied that such an argument was dictated by narrow-minded prejudice, a point of view suitable to the days when Lombardy had been divided amongst a number of weak city-states, but impracticable with powerful tyrants such as the Visconti, masters of North Italy. Unless Venice could secure the territories lying at the foot of the Alps, and also a wide stretch of eastern Lombardy, she would find that she had no command over the passes in the mountains by means of which she carried on her commerce with Germany and Austria. The advocates of a land empire policy received confirmation of their warnings when, in the early part of the 14th century, 
Mastino della Scala, Lord of Vicenza, Padua, and Treviso, attempted to levy taxes on Venetian goods passing through his territories. The Republic, roused by what she considered an insult to her commercial supremacy, promptly formed a league with Milan and Florence against Mastino, and obtained Treviso and other towns as a result of a victorious war. This campaign might, of course, be called merely a part of Venice's commercial policy, defense, not aggression. But later, in 1423, the Florentines persuaded the Republic to join with them in a war against the Visconti, declaring that they were weary of struggling alone against such tyrants, and that if Venice did not help them, they would be compelled to make Filippo Maria king of North Italy. The result of the war that followed was a treaty securing Venice a temporary increase of power on the mainland, and may be taken as the first decisive step in her deliberate scheme of building up a land empire in Italy. Machiavelli, a student of politics in the 16th century, who wrote a handbook of advice for rulers called The Prince, as well as the history of Florence, his native city, declares that the decline of the Venetians dated from the time when they became ambitious of conquest by land and of adopting the manners and customs of the other states of Italy. This may be true, but it is doubtful whether the great republics could have remained in glorious isolation with the Visconti knocking at her gates. From Venice we must turn to Florence, which by the 15th century emerged from petty rivalries as the first city in Tuscany. Like Milan, Florence fell a prey to gulfs and ghibellines, but these feuds, instead of becoming a family rivalry between would-be despots, developed into a bitter class war. On the fall of Frederick II, the gulfs, who in Florence at this date may be taken as representing the populo grasso, or rich merchants, as opposed to the grandi, or nobles, succeeded in driving the majority of their enemies out of the city. They then remodeled the constitution in their own favor. The chief power in the city was now the signory, composed of the gonfalonaire of justice and a number of priors, representatives of the arti, or guilds of lawyers, physicians, clothiers, and the like, to name but a few. No aristocrat might stand for any public office unless he became a member of one of the guilds, and in order to ensure that he did not merely write down his name on their registers, it was later enacted that every candidate for office must show proof that he really worked at the trade of the guild to which he claimed to belong. Other and sterner measures of proscription followed with successive generations. The noble who injured a citizen of lesser rank, whether on purpose or by accident, was liable to have his house leveled with the dust. The towers from which in the old days his ancestors had poured boiling oil or stones upon their rivals were reduced by law to a height that could be easily scaled. In the case of a riot, no aristocrat, however innocent his intentions, might have access to the streets. The grandi was, in fact, both in regard to politics and justice, placed at such an obvious disadvantage that to a noble and ambitious enemy was a favorite Florentine method of rendering him harmless. The gulf triumph of the 13th century did not, in spite of its completeness, bring peace to Florence. New parties sprang up, and the government, in its efforts to keep clear of class or family influence, 
introduced so many complicated checks that great injury was done to individual action and all hope of a steady policy removed members of the signory for instance served only for two months at a time the twelve buonamini or good men elected to give them advice only for six what was most in contrast to the ideal of the right man for the right job was the practice of first making a list of all citizens considered suitable to hold office then putting the names in a bag and afterwards picking them out haphazard as vacancies occurred even this precaution against favoritism and one is inclined to add also against efficiency was checked by another law the summoning of a parliamento in cases of emergency this parliamento was an informal gathering of the people collected by ringing of a bell in the big square where it was then asked to decide whether a special committee should be appointed with free power to alter the existing constitution politicians argued that here in the last resort was a direct appeal to the people but in reality by placing armed men at the entrances to the square a docile crowd could be maneuvered at the mercy of any mob orator set up by those behind the scenes power remained in florence in the hands of the prosperous burghers and merchants and these in time developed their own feuds under the names of whites and blacks adopted by the partisans in a family quarrel the greatest of italian poets dante alighieri was a white and was exiled from his city in thirteen o two owing to the triumph of his rivals when pardon was suggested on the payment of a large sum of money dante who had tried to serve his city faithfully refused to comply feeling that this would be an open acknowledgment of his guilt if another way can be found which shall not taint dante's fame and honor he wrote proudly that way i will accept and with no reluctant steps but if florence is not to be entered by any such way never will i enter florence dante's mental outlook was typical of medieval times in its stern prejudices and hatreds but it was also clearer and nobler in its scope an enthusiastic ghibelline in politics he believed that it was the first duty of holy roman emperors to exert their authority over italy but this vision was not narrowed as with many italians into the mere hope of restoration to home and power with a sequel of revenge on private enemies dearer to dante than any personal ambition was the desire for the salvation of both church and state from tyranny and corruption and this he believed could only be achieved by bestowing supreme power on a world emperor one attempt at reform had been made in twelve ninety four when the conclave of cardinals suddenly stung with the contrast between the character of the catholic church and its professions chose as their vicar a hermit noted for his privations and holy life celestine five as he was afterwards called was a small man pale and feeble with tousled hair and garments of sackcloth when a deputation of splendidly dressed cardinals came to find him he fled in terror and it was almost by force that he was at last persuaded to go with them and put on the pontifical robes the men and women who longed for reform now waited eagerly for this new pope's mandates but their expectations were doomed to failure celestine five had neither the originality nor the strength of will to withstand his change of fortunes terrified by his surroundings 
he became an easy prey to those who were unscrupulous and ambitious giving away benefices sometimes twice over because he dared not refuse them to importunate courtiers and creating new cardinals almost as fast as he was asked to do so at last he was allowed to abdicate and hurried back to his cell but only to be seized by a successor the fierce boniface ate and shut up in a castle where he died dante hated boniface as a ruler who debased his spiritual opportunities in order to obtain material rewards but he had hardly less scorn for celestine v who was given power to reform the church of christ and made the great refusal reform in the florentines eyes could not be looked for from rome but when emperor henry the seventh crossed the alps his hopes rose high that here at last was the savior of italy and it is probable that at this time the poet wrote his political treatise called the de monarchia embodying his views he himself went out to meet his champion but henry was not destined to be a second charlemagne or otto the great and his death closed all expectations built on his chivalrous character and ideals dante's greatest work is his long poem the divina comedia divided into three parts the inferno the purgatorio and the paradiso it tells how on good friday of the year of jubilee thirteen hundred the florentine meeting with the spirit of virgil whom he had chosen as his master was led by him through the realms of everlasting punishment and of penance and from there was borne by another guide beatrice the idealized vision of a woman he had loved on earth up through the nine heavens to the very throne of god as a summary of medieval theories as to the life eternal and also as the reflection of a fourteenth-century mind on politics of the day the divine comedy is indeed an historical treasury as well as a masterpiece of italian literature it is however a great deal more the revelation of the development of a human soul dante's journey is told with a mastery of atmosphere and detail that holds our imaginations today with a sense of reality it was obviously still more real to himself and expresses the agonized endeavor of a soul alive to the corruption and nerve weariness of the world around him to find the way of salvation a pilgrimage crowned at last by the realization of savitas day so supreme in its beauty and peace as to surpass the prophecies of st augustine Quote, now glory to the father to the son and to the holy spirit rang aloud throughout all paradise that with the song my spirit reeled so passing sweet the strain and what i saw was equal ecstasy one universal smile it seemed of all things joy past compare gladness unutterable imperishable life of peace and love exhaustless riches and unmeasured bliss dante himself did not live to fulfill his earthly dream of returning to florence but died at ravenna in thirteen twenty one on his tomb was an inscription in latin containing the words whom florence bore the mother that did little love him while his portrait has the proud motto so typical of his whole life i yield not to misfortune in later centuries florence recalled with shame her repudiation of this greatest of her sons 
but while he lived and for some years after his death political prejudices blinded her eyes in the emperor henry the seventh to whom dante referred to as king of the earth and servant of god florence saw an enemy so hateful that she was willing to forego her boasted democracy and to accept as master any prince powerful enough to oppose him thus she granted the signoria or overlordship of the city for five years to king robert of naples the head of the gulf party in italy during the early years of the fourteenth century king robert of naples was a grandson of charles count of anjou brother of st louis and true to the tradition of his house stood as a champion of the popes against imperial claims over italy outwardly he was by far the most powerful of the italian princes of his day but in reality he sat uneasily upon his throne the neapolitans had not learned with time to love their angevin rulers but even after the death of Conradin, remembered the Hohenstaufen and envied Sicily that dared to throw off the French yoke and give herself to a Spanish dynasty. It is difficult to provide a short and at the same time connected account of the history of Naples from the death of King Robert in 1343 until 1435, when it was conquered by the House of Aragon. For nearly a century, there is a dismal record of murders and plots with scarcely an illuminating glimpse of patriotism or of any heroic figure. It is like a dance of death with ever-changing partners, and nothing achieved save crimes and revolutions. King Robert's successor was a granddaughter, Joanna I, a political personage from her cradle, and married at the age of five to a boy cousin two years her senior, Andrew of Hungary, brother of Louis the Great. We cannot tell if, left to themselves, this young couple, each partner so passionate and self-willed, could have learned to work together in double harness. What is certain is that no one in that corrupt court gave them the chance, one party of intriguers continually whispering in Joanna's ear that as queen it was beneath her dignity to accept any interference from her husband, while their rivals reminded the young Prince Andrew that he was descended from King Robert's elder brother, and therefore had as great a right to the throne as his wife. Frequent quarrels as to whose will should prevail shook the council chamber, and then at last came tragedy. In 1345, Joanna and Andrew, then respectively eighteen and twenty, set out together into the country on an apparently amicable hunting expedition. As they slept one night in the guest room of a convent, the prince heard himself called by voices in the next room. Suspecting no harm, he rose and went to see which of his friends had summoned him, only to find himself attacked by a group of armed men. He turned to re-enter the bedroom, but the door was locked behind him. With the odds now wholly against him, Andrew fought bravely for his life, but at length two of his assassins succeeded in throwing a rope around his neck and with this they strangled him and hung his body from the balcony outside. Attendants came at last, and, forcing the door, told Joanna of the murder, on which she declared that she had been so soundly asleep that she had heard nothing, though she was never able to explain satisfactorily how, in that case, the door of her bedroom had become locked behind the young king. 
Naturally, the greater part of Europe believed that she was guilty of connivance in the crime, and King Louis of Hungary brought an army to Italy to avenge his brother's death. He succeeded in driving Joanna from Naples, which he claimed as his rightful inheritance, but he was not sufficiently supported to make a permanent conquest, and in the end he was forced to hurry away to Hungary, where his throne was threatened, leaving the question of his sister-in-law's guilt to be decided by the Pope. The Pope at this time looked to the Angevin rulers of Naples as his chief supporters, and at once proclaimed Joanna innocent. It is worthy of note that three princes were found brave enough to become her husband in turn, but, though four times married, Joanna had but one son, who died as a boy. At first, she was quite willing to accept as her heir a cousin, Charles of Durazzo, who was married to her niece, but soon she had quarreled violently with him and offered the throne instead to a member of the French royal house, Louis, Duke of Anjou. This is a very bewildering moment for students of history, because it introduces into Italian politics a second Angevin dynasty only distantly connected with the first, yet both laying claim to Naples and waging war against one another as if each belonged to a different race. Joanna, in the end, was punished for her capriciousness, for in the course of the civil war she had introduced, she fell into the hands of Charles of Durazzo, who, indignant at his repudiation, shut her up in a castle where she died. One report says that she was smothered with a feather bed, another that she was strangled with a silken cord, perhaps in memory of Prince Andrew's murder. After this act of retribution, Charles of Durazzo maintained his power in Naples for four years, though he was forced to surrender the county of Provence to his Anzervin rival. Not content with his Italian kingdom, he set off with an army to Hungary as soon as he heard of the death of Louis the Great, hoping to enforce his claims on that warrior's lands. Instead, he was assassinated and succeeded in Naples by his son, Ladislaw, a youth of fifteen. Ladislaus proved a born soldier of unflagging energy and purpose, so that he not only conquered his unruly baronage, but made himself master of southern Italy, including Rome, from which, with usual Angevin hostility, he drove the Pope. Here was a chance for bringing about the union of Italy under one ruler, and Ladislaus certainly aimed at such an achievement. But apart from his military genius, he was a typical despot of his day, cruel, unscrupulous, and pleasure-seeking as the Visconti, and, when he died, still a young man, in 1414, few mourned his passing. His sister, Joanna too, who succeeded him, lacked his strength while exhibiting many of his vices. Like Joanna I, she was false and fickle. Like Joanna I, she had no direct heirs, so that the original house of Anjou and Naples came to an end when she died. Many negotiations as to her successor took place during the latter years of her reign, and for some time it seemed as if the old queen would be content to accept Louis III of Anjou, at this time the representative of the second Angevin house. But in a moment of caprice and anger, she suddenly bestowed her favor instead on Alfonso V of Aragon in Sicily, and adopted him as her heir. Of course, being Joanna, she again changed her mind, 
but though alfonso pretended to accept his repudiation the hard-headed spaniard was not to be turned so easily from an acquisition that would forward aragonese's ambitions in the mediterranean directly joanna too died alfonso appeared off naples with a fleet and though he was taken prisoner in battle and sent as a prisoner to filippo maria visconti at milan he acted with such diplomacy that he persuaded that despot hitherto an ally of the angevins that it was much safer for milan to have a spanish rather than the french house reigning in naples this was the beginning of a firm alliance between milan and naples for alfonso released from his captivity succeeded in establishing himself in the kingdom where withdrawing his court from aragon he founded a new capital that became the centre for learned and cultured italians as of old in the days of frederick too we have dealt now with four of the five principal italian states during the later middle ages in rome to pick up the political threads we must go back to the effects of the removal of the papal court to avignon in thirteen o eight from the point of view of the popes themselves many of them frenchmen by birth there were considerable advantages to be gained by this change not only safety from the invasions of holy roman emperors aspiring to rule italy but also from the turbulence of roman citizens and barons of the campagna avignon was near enough to france to claim her king's protection but far enough outside her boundaries to evade obedience to her laws it stood in the county of provence part of the french estates of the angevin house of naples but during her exile joanna i penniless and in need of papal support was induced to sell the city and it remained an independent possession of the holy see until the eighteenth century from the immediate advantages caused by the babylonian captivity as these years of papal residence in avignon were called we turn to the ultimate disadvantages and these were serious inevitably there was a lowering of papal prestige in the eyes of europe in rome that since classic times had been the recognized capital of the western world the pope had seemed indeed a world-wide potentate on whom the mantle both of st peter and of the caesars might well have fallen transferred to a city of provence he shrank almost to the measure of a petty sovereign during the hundred years war for instance there was widespread grumbling in england at the obedience owed to avion the popes ran popular complaint were more than half french in political outlook and sympathy so that an englishman who wished for a successful decision to his suit in a papal law court must pay double the sums proffered by men of any other race in order to obtain justice what was more he knew that any money he sent to the papal treasury helped to provide the sinews of war for his most hated enemies the papacy had been disliked across the channel in the days of innocent four when england was taxed to pay for wars against the hohenstaufen now more than a century later grumbling had begun to crystallize in the dangerous shape of a resistance not merely to papal supremacy but the papal doctrine on which that supremacy was based thus wycliffe the first great english heretic who began to proclaim his views during the later years of edward the third's reign was popularly regarded as a patriot and his sermons denouncing catholic doctrine widely read and discussed 
In the 13th century, it had been possible to suppress heresy in Languedoc. But in the 14th century, there were no longer popes like Innocent III who could persuade men to fight battles of Avignon, and so the practice of criticism and independent thought grew, and by the 15th century, many of the doctrines taught by Wycliffe had spread across Europe and found a home in Bohemia. With the history of the Bohemian heresy, we shall deal later, but having treated its development as partly arising from the change in papal fortunes, we must notice the effect of the Babylonian captivity on Rome herself, and this indeed was disastrous. The absence of the Pope, says Gregorovius, a modern German historian, left the nobility more unbridled than ever. These hereditary houses now regarded themselves as masters of Rome, left without her master. Their mercenaries encamped on every road. Travelers and pilgrims were robbed. Places of worship remained empty. The entire circumstances of the city were reduced to a meaner level. No prince, nobleman, or envoy of a foreign power any longer made his appearance. Vickers replaced the cardinals absent from their titular churches, while the Pope himself was represented in the Vatican as by a shadow by some bishop of the neighborhood, Nepi, Viterbo, or Orvieto. The wealth and pomp that had made the papal court a source of revenue to the Romans were transferred to Provence. The Orsini and Colonna battled in the streets with no high pontiff to hold them in check. Only his agents remained, who were there mainly to collect his rents and revenues, so that the city seemed once again threatened with political extinction, as when Constantine had removed his capital to the Bosporus. One short period of glory there was in seventy years of gloom. The realized vision of a Roman, Cola de Rienzi, a youth of the people, who, steeped in the writings of classical times, hoped to bring back to the city the freedom and greatness of republican days. From contemporary accounts, Rienzi had a wonderful personality, striking looks, and an eloquence that rarely failed to move those who heard him. At Avignon, as a Roman envoy, he gained papal consent to some measures earnestly desired at Rome, and this success won him a large and enthusiastic following amongst the citizens, who applauded all that he said and offered to uphold his ambitions with their swords. The first step to the greatness of Rome was obviously to restore order to her streets, and Rienzi therefore determined to overthrow the nobles, who with their retainers were always brawling, and above all the proud family of Colonna, one of whom without any provocation had killed his younger brother in a fit of rage. The revolution took place in May 1347, when, with a papal vicar standing at his side, and banners representing liberty, justice, and peace floating above his head, Rienzi proclaimed a new constitution to the populace and invested himself as chief magistrate with the title of Tribune, illustrious redeemer of the Holy Roman Republic. At first there was laughter amongst the Roman nobles when they heard of this proclamation. If the fool provokes me further, exclaimed Stephen Colonna, the head of that powerful clan, I will throw him from the capital but his contempt was turned to dismay when he heard that a citizen army was guarding the bridges and confining the aristocratic families to their houses. 
in the end stephen fled to his country estates while the younger members of his household came to terms with the tribune and swore allegiance to the new republic rienzi was now triumphant and his letters to all the rulers of europe announced that rome had found peace and law while he exhorted the other cities of italy to throw off the yoke of tyrants and join a national brotherhood it would seem that rienzi alone of his contemporaries saw a vision of a united italy but unfortunately the common sense and balance that are necessary to secure the practical realization of a visionary's dreams were lacking the tribune was undoubtedly great but not great enough to stand success a child of peasants he began to boast that he was really a son of the emperor henry the seventh and the pageantry that he had first employed to dazzle the romans grew more and more elaborate as he himself became ensnared by a false sense of his own dignity clad in a toga of white silk edged with a golden fringe he would ride through the streets on a white horse amid a cavalcade of horsemen splendidly equipped in order to celebrate his accession to power he instituted a festival where amid scenes of lavish pomp he was knighted in the lateran with a golden girdle and spurs and after bathing in the porphyry font in which tradition declared that constantine had been cleansed from leprosy the people as is the way with crowds clapped their hands and shouted while the trumpets blew and they scrambled for the gold rienzi's servants threw broadcast but long afterwards when they had forgotten the even-handed justice their tribune had secured them they remembered his foolish extravagance and display and resented the taxes that he found it necessary to impose in order to maintain his government and state the history of rienzi's later years is a tale of brilliant opportunities created in the first place by his genius and then lost by his timidity or lack of balance on one occasion when he learned that the very nobles who had sworn on oath to uphold his constitution were plotting its overthrow he invited the leaders of the conspiracy to a banquet arrested them and sent them under guard to prison the next morning the prison bell tolled and the nobles within were let out apparently to the death their treachery had richly deserved at the last moment however when each had given up hope the tribune came before the scaffold and after a sermon on the forgiveness of sins ordered those who were condemned to be set free if he had wished to win their allegiance by this act of clemency rienzi had ill-judged his enemies they had disliked him before as a peasant upstart now they hated him far more bitterly as a man who had been able to humble them in the public gaze believing whether rightly or wrongly that it was not forgiveness but fear of the powerful families to which they belonged that had finally moved him to mercy from this moment the orsini the colonna and their friends had but one object in life to pull the tribune from his throne by bribery and the spreading of false rumors they set themselves to undermine his influence telling tales everywhere of his extravagance and luxury as contrasted with the heavy taxes until at last in thirteen fifty four a tumult broke out in the city and a mob collected that stormed the palace where rienzi lodged shouting death to the traitor as the tribune attempted to escape he was seen against the flames of his burning walls and cut down 
With the fall of Rienzi died the idea of a restored and reformed Italy through the medium of a Holy Roman Republic, just as Dante's hope of a new and more perfect Roman Empire had been shattered by the death of Henry VII. Was there then no hope for Italy in medieval minds? The next answer, that there was hope, indeed came from Siena, one of the hill towns not far south of Florence, and its author was a peasant girl, Catherine Benincasa, who, like Jean d'Arc, looking round upon the misery of her country, believed that she was called by God to show her fellow countrymen the way of salvation. St. Catherine, for she was afterwards canonized, was one of the twenty-five children of a Sienese dyer, who was at first very angry that his daughter refused to marry, and instead joined the order of Dominican tertiaries, that is, of women who, still remaining in their own homes, bound themselves by vows to obey a religious rule. In time, not only the Dyer, but all Siena came to realize that Catherine possessed a mind and a spirit far above ordinary standards, so that, while in her simplicity she would accept the meanest household tasks, she had yet so great an understanding of the larger issues of life that she could read the cause of each man or woman's trouble who came to her and suggest the remedy they needed to give them fresh courage or hope. During an outbreak of plague in Siena, it was Catherine, who, undismayed and tireless, went everywhere amongst the sick and dying, infusing new heart into the weary doctors and energy into patients succumbing helplessly to the disease. When one of the wild young nobles of the town was condemned to death, according to the harsh law of the day, for having dared to criticize his government, Catherine visited him in prison. She found him raging up and down his cell like some trapped wild animal, refusing all comfort. But her presence and sympathy brought him so great a sense of peace, and even of thanksgiving, that he went to the scaffold at last joyfully, we are told, calling it the holy place of justice. Here, not shrinking from the scene of death itself, Catherine awaited him, kneeling before the block, and received his head in her lap when it was severed from his body. When he was at rest, she wrote afterwards, showing what a strain had been, my soul also rested in peace and quiet. St. Catherine was not alarmed when ambassadors from other cities, and even messengers from the Pope at Avignon, came to ask her advice on thorny problems. She believed that she was a messenger of God, servant and slave of the servants of Jesus Christ, as she styled herself in her letters, and that God intended the regeneration of Italy to be brought about neither by emperor nor by a holy Roman republic, but by the Pope himself. No longer must he live at Avignon, but return to Rome, and once established there, begin the work of reform so sorely needed both by church and state. Then would follow a call to the world that, recognizing by his just and generous acts that he was indeed the father of Christendom, would joyfully come to offer its allegiance. This high ideal touched the hearts and imaginations of even the least spiritual of Catherine's contemporaries. One of her letters was addressed to that firebrand, Sir John Hawkwood, whom she besought to turn his sword away from Italy against the Turks and it is said that on reading it he took an oath that if other captains would go on a crusade, he would do so also. 
St. Catherine herself went to Avion and saw Pope Gregory XI, a timid man who loved luxury and peace of mind, fearing greatly the turbulence of Rome. At this time, all the barons of the Campana and most of the cities on the papal estates were up in arms, and Gregory had been warned that unless he went in person to pacify the combatants, he was likely to lose all his temporal possessions. Catherine, when consulted, told him sternly that he should certainly return to Italy, but not for this reason. Open the eyes of your intelligence, he said, and look steadily at this matter. You will then see, Holy Father, that it is more needful for you to win back souls than to reconquer your earthly possessions. In January 1377, St. Catherine gained her most signal triumph, for Gregory XI, at her persuasion, appeared in Rome and took up his quarters there, so bringing to an end the Babylonish captivity. Not long afterwards he died, and the Romans who had rejoiced at his coming were overwhelmed with fear that his successor might be a Frenchman and return to Avignon. Give us a Roman, they howled, surging around the palace where the College of Cardinals, or Consistory as it was called, was holding the election. And the Cardinals, believing that they would be torn in pieces unless they at least chose an Italian, hastily elected a Neapolitan, the Archbishop of Berry, who took the name of Urban VI. It was an unfortunate choice. Urban honestly wished to reform the church, but of Christian charity, without which good deeds are of no avail, he possessed nothing. Arrogant, passionate, and fierce in his frequent hatreds, blind to either tact or moderation, he tried to force the cardinals by threats and insults into surrendering their riches and pomp. I tell you in truth, exclaimed one of them, when he had listened to the Pope's first fiery denunciations, you have not treated the cardinals today with the respect they receive from your predecessors. If you diminish our honor, we shall diminish yours. Rome was soon aflame with the plots of the rebellious college, whose members finally withdrew from the city, declared that they had been intimidated in their choice by the mob, that the election of Urban was therefore invalid, and that they intended to appoint someone else. As a result of this new conclave, there appeared a rival pope, Clement VII, who, after a short civil war, fled from Italy and took up his residence at Avignon. The period that followed is called the Great Schism, one of the times of deepest humiliation into which the papal power ever descended. From Rome and Avignon, two sets of bulls, claiming divine sanction and the necessity of human obedience, went forth to Christendom, their authors each declaring himself the one lawful successor of St. Peter and the father of the Holy Catholic Church. With Clement VII cited France, her ally Scotland, Spain, and Naples. With Urban VI, Germany, England, and most of the northern kingdoms. And when these popes died, the cardinals they had elected perpetuated the schism by choosing fresh rivals to rend the unity of the church. Thus, in the struggle for temporal supremacy, reform was forgotten, and the growing spirit of doubt and skepticism given a fair field in which to sow her seed. St. Catherine had realized her desire, the return of the pope to Rome, only, we see, 
to find it fail in achieving the purpose for which she had prayed and planned. The popes of the 14th century were men of the age in which they lived, not great souls like the saint of Siena herself, who called them to a task of which they were spiritually incapable. With her death, her ideal faded, and another gradually took shape in the minds of men, namely, an appeal from the vicar of Christ on earth to Christ himself, residing in the whole body of the church. Christendom remembered that in the early days of her history it had been the councils of the fathers, sitting at Nicaea and elsewhere, that had defined the faith and made laws for the Catholic Church. Now it was suggested that once more a large world council should be called from every Catholic nation, composed of cardinals, archbishops, bishops, the heads of the friars and of the monastic and military orders, together with doctors of theology and law. This council was to be given power by the whole of Christendom to end the schism, condemn heresy, and reform the church. The person who was chiefly responsible for the summoning of this council that met at Constance in 1414 was Sigismund, king of the Romans, a son of the emperor Charles IV, and brother and heir to the emperor Wenzel, a drunken sot, who was also king of Bohemia, but quite incapable of playing an intelligent part in public affairs. Sigismund was king of Hungary by election and through his marriage with a daughter of Louis the Great but his subjects had little respect for his ability and were usually in a state of chronic rebellion. In spite of the fact that he had no money and had been decisively and ingloriously defeated in battle by the Turks, he continued to hold high ambitions, desiring above all things to appear as the arbiter of European destinies who would reform both church and state. The Council of Constance gave him an opportunity and certainly no other man worked as hard to make it a success. Sometimes he presided in person at the meetings, which dragged out their weary discussions for about four years, and at other times he would visit the courts of Europe, trying to persuade rival popes to resign, or, if they were obstinate, civil sovereigns to refuse them patronage and protection. He even tried, though in vain, to act as mediator in the Hundred Years' War, in order that the political quarrels of French and English might not bring friction to the council board. It is unfortunate for Sigismund's memory that his share in the Council of Constance was marred by treachery. As heir to the throne of Bohemia and the incapable Wenzel, he was often led to interfere in the affairs of that kingdom, and felt it his duty to take some steps with regard to the spread of Wycliffe's doctrines amongst his future subjects especially in the National University of Prague. Here, heretical views were daily expounded by a clever priest and teacher, John Huss. Now the Orthodox Catholics in the university were mainly Germans and hated by the ordinary Bohemians, who were Slavs, and these therefore admired and followed Huss for national as well as from religious convictions. Sigismund agreed with Huss in desiring a drastic reform of the church, suitable means for ensuring which he hoped to see devised at Constance. At the same time, he trusted that the representatives of Christendom would come to some kind of a compromise with the Bohemian teacher on his religious views, and persuade him by their arguments to withdraw some of his most unorthodox opinions. 
with this ended view he therefore invited huss to appear at the council offering him a safe conduct many of the bohemians suspected treachery and shook their heads when their national hero insisted that he was bound in honor to make profession of his faith when summoned god be with you exclaimed one for i fear greatly that you will never return to us this prophecy was fulfilled for huss when he arrived at constance found that Segesimon was absent and the attitude of the council definitely hostile to anything he might say after a prolonged examination he was called upon to recant his errors and refusing to yield was condemned to death as a heretic Segesimon, on his return to constant shortly after the sentence had been passed was persuaded that unless he consented to withdraw his safe conduct the whole gathering would break up in wrath herod he was told had made a bad oath in agreeing to fulfill the wish of herodias's daughter and should have refused her demand for the head of john the baptist to pledge faith to a heretic was equally wrong for as an example and warning to christendom all heretics should be burned it was imperative therefore for the good of the church that such a safe conduct should be withdrawn Segesimon at last sullenly yielded conscious of the stain on his honor yet still more fearful lest the council he had called together with so great an effort should melt away its tasks unfulfilled as his many enemies hoped in july fourteen fifteen huss was burned alive crying aloud with steadfast courage of those about him who urged him to recant lo i am prepared to die in that truth of the gospel which i taught and wrote lest he should be revered as a martyr the ashes of huss were flung into the river his very clothes destroyed but measures that had prevailed when an arnold of brescia preached to a few some two centuries before were unavailing when a john huss died for the faith of a nation Segesimon kept his counsel together, but he paid for his broken word in the flame of hatred that his accession in 1419 aroused in Bohemia, and which lasted during the seventeen years of what are usually called the Hussite Wars. The Council of Constance had condemned heresy. It succeeded in deposing three rival popes, and by its united choice of a new pope, Martin V., it put an end to the long schism that had divided the church. The question of reform, the most vital of all the problems discussed, resulted in such controversy that men grew weary, and it was postponed for settlement to another council that the new pope pledged himself to call in five years. Such were the practical results of the first real attempt of the church to solve the problems of medieval times, not by the decision of one man, whether pope or emperor, but by the voice of christendom at large if the attempt failed the difficulties in the way were so great that failure was inevitable the conciliar movement was modern in the sense that it was an appeal to the judgment of the many rather than of a single autocrat but it proved too medieval in actual construction and working for the growing spirit of nationality that brought its prejudices and its misunderstandings to the council hall English and French, Germans and Bohemians, Italians and men from beyond the Alps, were too mutually suspicious, too assured of the righteousness of their own outlook, 
to be able to sacrifice their individual or still more their national convictions to traditional authority the day for world rule as medieval statesmen understood the term had passed and the council of constance was a witness to its passing end of chapter twenty one